This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. We desperately, as a gathering, want to be known in our larger community for what we are for. And what we are for is people, because we believe that God is pro-people. This passage that we just saw said, God so loved, and you can insert people. The world, but the world was in the context of people. God so loved people that he didn't take, but he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not have to experience and taste eternal death, but what could experience and taste life in abundance and fullness, both here and now, and as we walk through this life into eternity. And so as a gathering, we're asking some big questions. What does it look like to really before people. How can we love people? And that's where this series was really birthed from. I read a book called Everybody Always that many of you at this point have read, and it was all about learning how to love everybody always. But the tricky thing about love is, and I've said this over and over again, love is such a nebulous word. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my dog. I have two. I love one. I like the other a lot. i Listen, I love the Chicago Bears. I love the Chicago Bears. This is our year after a rebuilding decade. (laughs) I love the Chicago Bears. I love Super Burritos. Oh, who doesn't love Super Burritos? My son loves Super Burritos. Yes, sir, I love you, Landon. But I don't love Super Burritos like I love Landon, and I don't love my dog like I love my wife. That'd be weird. So what is it about love. We have to get really specific. When I was pitching this idea to my wife, because every good idea she kind of runs through her, and so I was pitching this idea on the series to her, and she said, well, how are you going to talk for eight weeks about love? And I said, well, we are going to get laser focused about what love is in the context of being a gathering of people who is for our larger community in Sonoma County. So if you're just tuning in with us, I want to give you a quick recap on where we've been, because summer is a time when we are all over the place, and it's just so fun to have you joining us, even if you're joining us from places like Alaska. So fun to have you here with us. I think we've got friends all the way from out there. So let me just fill you back in on where we've been. We've been talking about the fact that love desires what's best for you, even, not if, even when, because it always costs at some point, even when it is costly to me. This is the kind of love that God expressed through Jesus. He did what was best for us, even though it was costly to him. We talked about the reality that love is shown through curiosity over criticism, that in our lives we will have an abundance of opportunity to either not understand where someone's coming from or not agree with the choices that they are making. And when we do not understand or agree, we have a decision to make. Well, I choose curiosity. I wonder why. And curiosity presses in and, and it builds relationship. Or will I choose criticism? Criticism. They're just a bunch of idiots. If you've ever had your thought to yourself, idiot. They're idiots. He's an idiot. She's an idiot. I can't believe they would vote that way, think that way, dress that way. Idiot. Then you're choosing criticism over curiosity. And the problem with criticism is it builds walls where God desires to build bridges. And so we've talked about love is shown through curiosity. We talked about the reality that love is shown through availability. That Jesus, even though he only had about three and a half years where he was doing this public teaching and healing of people— He still made himself available across the spectrum. 
to people who were seen as outcasts in the community, who were the forgotten, to people who had all sorts of authority and influence and everything. But he didn't favor one over the other. He was available to all people. Today, I want to talk about an aspect of love that if I do my job well, you will say, duh. But if I do it too well, you won't grasp the depth and complexity of this next thing. And it, I mean, it's really, it's really important. Here's the thing. I think a lot of us, a lot of us walk around assuming that our worst moments are our defining moments. And that our best moments, that, that they're just kind of, um, you just caught us like at a good, a good time. But really, at our core, we're rotten. And I want to talk about a friend that I met who changed my perspective on this. I met this friend when I was in my early 20s. And I need to give, the, give you the backstory about this guy because he, he's incredible. He's one of these stories that you read about and it's like, oh my goodness. Here's the backstory for this guy that I met in my early 20s. Uh, he is a young man, or he was when I met him, and um, he'd been adopted. And that plays a major role in his story because uh, he, his parents were still living, but for a number of circumstances, as is the case oftentimes globally, they could not care for their son. And so while they were still alive, they had to give him up for adoption. And he was taken in by a family, and this family, uh, they gave him the good life. He had wealth. He had privilege. He was, he was taught in the best schools by the best thinkers and leaders of his time. But the downside was he was from a minority culture family in a majority culture world, and he was adopted by a majority culture family. And through the process of his childhood, he forgot where he came from. He forgot about his roots and his culture and his heritage. And then as he rounded the corner into adulthood, he started to ask some big questions that many of us do as we enter into that time, especially if you are living as a minority culture person in a majority culture world. Questions about where did I come from? How does my heritage play into the way that I view the world and view faith and view community? And as he started asking these big questions, he went through a number of very common stages in what's called ethnic identity development. He went through some sorrow for what he had missed. He went through some anger, anger with his adopted parents for not teaching him and training him about who he was, anger with his culture that he came from because they had basically rejected him as he had walked away from them. And one day he got so angry that he picked a fight with a guy. And the guy he picked a fight with didn't back down. And they, they got into it. They got into this altercation, and he ended up killing this guy. And he was so full of, of rage and shame and fear. His life was now over as a young man. Then instead of submitting to authorities and being arrested, he, he ran and he ran into the desert, and, and don't think Palm Springs, think Barstow, to go and hide. And he's hiding out in the desert in Barstow. I want to put a pen in his story because we're going to come back to this in a second. But when I was first introduced to this man, he was leading a, a gathering of God-fearing people who at that time was the largest gathering in the world 
which makes you stop and ask, how did you get from anger and murder to leading this huge gathering of people? And so I started asking these questions, and I was handed his biography, and I started reading his biography, and I want to read you an excerpt from his biography. It's found in this ancient letter called Exodus, and it starts off like this. Now, Moses, this is the man I was introduced to, not in person, but on the pages of this ancient historical document called the letter of Exodus. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, who was a priest in Midian. Midian's this spot out in the desert, kind of the middle of nowhere. He had killed an Egyptian. He was raised under the Egyptian leaders, but he was a Jewish man. And the Jews had been slaves for 400 years under Egyptian oppression. And as he became an adult and realized his Jewish ancestry and his roots, he became so angry and embittered about what was happening to his people that he wanted to care for them, but they rejected him because he was now one of them, one of the Egyptians. And so they rejected him, but he had this this, thing inside of him. And so he gets into a fight with an Egyptian uh, authority kind of taskmaster one day. He kills the man. He runs away. He finds himself in the desert. And he's working for his father-in-law, Jethro. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness. The wilderness is the Bible's way of saying nowhere. I mean, like, not even Barstow. Think Ledlow and Yermo. And if you're thinking, where is Ledlow and Yermo? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Nowhere that anyone wants to be from. If you can find a Slurpee because there's a 7-Eleven, it's a big town in Ledlow and Yermo. Nowhere. He's in the wilderness— And he came to Horeb, to the mountain of God. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. And Moses saw this, and I love it. He thought to himself, huh, this bush is on fire, and it didn't burn up. So Moses thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go over and see this strange sight. I wonder why this bush does not burn up. He's got a a choice to make, and maybe you're here this morning and you find yourself in a similar spot. You're walking into a church, maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time in a long time, and there are a lot of things that seem a little bit strange. This group of people is standing up and singing, and while the band is good, they're no Jack Johnson or someone else that you like. I mean, they are, they are, but I'm not at a concert. I can tell because the smells aren't all there. You know what I'm talking about? Let me refrain. Our worship team is excellent, better than Jack Johnson. But there's no burning bush, if you know what I'm talking about. Inappropriate. That is inappropriate. It's inappropriate. Yes. And you're here, and you're re-exploring questions about faith. But there's a lot of weird stuff. These people are singing songs, and they're clapping. They took a little bit of juice and a little piece of bread that somehow they think represents this major turning point in human history. And you have a choice to make. Because you can tell that there's something here. I mean, look at these people. They actually seem like they want to be around each other. They actually come to church when they don't have to. This is incredible. There's something here. And your choice, like Moses' choice, is either to walk away and continue life, tending your flocks, whatever that looks like, or to go and see this strange sight, to press in and ask a few more questions. 
And this is exactly what he does. The next verse says this. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, when, when Moses showed curiosity, God showed up. God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. And these friends are three of the most exhilarating, terrifying, life-changing words you could ever say to God. If something strikes you this morning and you think there could be more, I would, I would invite you, when you go home tonight, say, God, I don't know the whole thing. But here I am. If you want to reveal yourself to me, I'm going to orient myself towards you. Here I am. Maybe you're here and you've been following Jesus your entire life. But something in you knows there's got to be something more. Maybe the the thing you need to say to God when you get home is, here I am. What's the something more? God, what do you want to show me? What do you want to do through me? What do you want to do in me? God, here I, here I am. God responds to him. Don't come any closer, Mo. Take off your sandals. I love this. I'm from Southern California. My favorite verse in the whole Bible, take off your sandals. <laughs> the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then, God tells Moses who he is. And the reason why this is so important is because the Israelites had been in slavery for 400 years under Egypt. And Egypt had at least 2,000 gods and goddesses, deities above every shape and size, deities for everything. They had sun gods and moon gods, river gods. They even had gods of beer, like wheat and barley gods. And, And so the Israelites forgot who God was, especially Moses, who had been raised under the Egyptian way of thinking and the mindset. And so God says to him, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I'm not just one of a pantheon of deities. I am the God of your people, the one true God, the, the OG, the original God. All these other gods, they're just small statues and pictures, but I am, I'm your God, the God of your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Moses did something that is so, so interesting. It says he hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. This is actually a very common response for people in the Bible. When they come face to face with God, more often than not, they turn away and they hide. Why? Well, because when you're faced with perfection, and we're told that God is perfect, that God is perfection, isn't your natural tendency to realize in the face of perfection your imperfection? I mean, you might think you're a great baseball player until you meet a professional baseball player. And then you're like, oh, in the face of you, meh. I I remember um, I met one of my favorite communicators, a guy named Andy Stanley. uh, And for me, he's like, wow, like, wow. Wow. And uh, I was out at this conference that his church was putting on, but his church has like 30,000 people. It's like a city, okay? And so I'm driving into this conference, and um, I accidentally cut somebody off. And then that somebody pulled in behind me, and I realized I had cut off Andy Stanley, this, <laughs> this guy who's like, wow, to me. And he got out and knocked on my window and waved uh, to myself and Angela, uh, one of our pastors. And um, I was like, ah, I'm a, I'm a, like, Because coming face-to-face with someone who you respect so immensely, it's natural to feel a little bit inadequate. Take that 
to the nth degree, and you've got the way that Moses feels as he looks at God. Because oftentimes, we define ourselves by our worst moments, by our poorest choices, by the things that we wish nobody actually knew about us. And then we come face to face with God who is perfect, and all of a sudden, our imperfection is laid bare. And it's natural to hide, but I want to show you what God does. So the Lord said to Moses, I've indeed indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. We're going to talk about this in a few weeks, but we need to remember that God, he sees the plight of people, people who the rest of the world forgets and doesn't see. He sees that he hears when people cry out. And injustice in the world is not a mark against God. It's a marker of the reality of sin and brokenness and death. But God is the God who sees and he hears the cries of his people, and God is concerned about their suffering. And so God says to Moses, So I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up to a land that is good and spacious, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's just his way of saying it's a really, really good land. Uh, He's using hyperbole. It's flowing with milk and honey. You can insert whatever you want here. I would say it's flowing with super burritos. The super burritos flow like vineyards, flow like grapes. It's a land flowing of milk and honey. And at this point, Moses is thinking, this is great. God's going to rescue my people. That's fantastic. He's going to save them because he hears them and he cares about them. And he wants to do something. After 400 years, God is going to act. And then God says something to Moses that stops him dead in his tracks. Here's what he says. So now go. I am sending you, Moses, to Pharaoh to bring my people up out of Egypt. And there are crickets. And it stops. And all you can hear is the crackling of the fire in this bush. And Moses, probably all the, all the color just drains from his face. What do you mean you're sending me? I was all for God hears, God sees, God's concerned, God's going to save. Moses turns to God and he says to God, Who am I? Who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. That is such a great question. Because Moses has certain opinions about Moses. And God has certain opinions about Moses. And they're both reading the same set of data points, but coming to coming to two very different conclusions. So I want to just take a second and talk about what we can tell from the story Moses thinks about Moses. And then I want to talk about what God thinks about Moses. So here's Moses' thoughts about Moses. Moses thinks, I'm an orphan. Orphans don't have a whole lot of status, a whole lot of standing. In fact, throughout the pages of uh, the Old Testament and New Testament of the Bible, we're told to care for orphans because in and of themselves, they have very little standing. I'm an orphan. He also thinks this about himself. I'm a traitor in the eyes of the Jewish people. I'm a turncoat. I've left. I went with the oppressors. He thinks this. I've got anger issues. Yeah, yeah, you killed a dude. Yeah, you've got some anger issues. 
He thinks this, I'm, I'm a murderer and I'm a fugitive. Who am I to go to Pharaoh? Pharaoh's got a death sentence out on me. There's a warrant for my arrest, which will end in my death. Who am I? Don't you know about all of my worst moments, God? I'm all for you doing something great. You're just not going to do it through a guy like me. Now contrast that to God's thoughts about the same data points. God's thinking, yeah, I knew you before you were born. I actually knew you. I protected you in your infancy. In the story, we find out that God actually guided Moses to the household of Pharaoh and protected him. I placed you in a royal household. I set you up to learn from the Egyptians who were the leaders in thought, in architecture, the leaders in math and science and language. They were the global superpower. I've set you up to learn, and I've given you this really strong drive towards justice. Moses, you are exactly who I think should go to Pharaoh. Yeah, Moses, I know who you are. I've seen your worst moments. And in fact, I kind of cringed when I, I saw some of them. And at the same time, I know who you are. And I've placed you. I know who you're becoming I know the things you're thinking, and I'm not defining you based on your worst. I'm defining you based on something different. So Moses said to the Lord, because he's still stuck in this moment, Moses said to the Lord, "Um, pardon your servant. So they go back and forth for the rest of chapter three, by the way, on who am I? And God's like, I know who you are. And he's like, do you really? And he's like, yes, I do. And then God says, now tell people who I am. I'm gracious. I'm kind. I'm compassionate. I'm strong. I will rescue. They go all the way through. And then Moses, in the next chapter, we skipped a little bit, says, pardon your servant, Lord. Then he says this, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past or since I've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. God, do you know who I am? I'm not an orator. I can't go before Moses. Listen, when I first met my wife, Sapora, she was so hot, and I tried to pick her up, and the best I could say was, I'm your density, instead of I'm your destiny. Come on. Come on. Was, I've been waiting. Listen, I, I can't. Sapora went for it. She went for it, because she dug my beard. This is Moses' thought. But, but the Egyptians... They aren't going to go for it. I'm not a speaker. Send someone else. Please, God, send someone else. The next slide. The Lord said to him, let me ask you a question, Mo. Who gave human beings their mouths? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, go. I will help you. Yes, I know you can't speak. Yes, I know you stutter. Yes, I know you say the wrong thing at least once every half hour. Yes, I know that. Just go. I will speak, and I will teach you what to say. But Moses said to God, pardon your servant, Lord. You catching a theme? Please. And here's where he's just like, all right, I'm done with excuses. I've said, do you know who I am? You've said yes. I've said, I can't speak. You said, I know. I'll help you. Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Just come on. 
And at this point, Moses is in danger of missing out on the greatest adventure of his life because of who he thinks he is. And we're told that the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said to him, actually, we'll get there in a second. His anger burned against Moses. And commentators have different reasons why. Now, most commentators, they say God's anger burned against Moses because of Moses' lack of faith. Now, in my humble but most likely correct opinion, they're wrong. They're wrong. (laughs) Here's why I would say that. Moses is talking to a burning bush and assuming it's God. That takes a little bit of faith. To see a bush on fire and to walk over and say, hey, bush, why are you on fire? Have the bush say, actually, this is God speaking to you, and to believe it. That takes a lot of trust in God. I don't think it's his lack of faith. I really don't. I think the problem is that Moses believes about Moses certain things, and God believes about Moses other things. And Moses is choosing to believe what he believes about himself over what God believes about him. And in that, he's questioning God's judgment and God's character in himself. And he's about to miss out on life with God because of a really bad narrative about him. So the Lord's anger burned against Moses, but even as his anger was burning, he gave Moses a way through. What about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put your words in his mouth, and I will help both of you speak, and I will teach you what to do. Aaron became um, what we would call a pastor. It's like, yeah, no wonder, because he could speak a lot, and pastors love to monologue. That's like one of our things that we love to do. My poor wife, my poor wife's dad was a radio broadcaster who was a play-by-play announcer. All he did was monologue, and then she married me. Can you imagine? What a saint. Um, So the story goes on for the next few chapters. Moses reluctantly goes back to Egypt. He reluctantly goes to Pharaoh and goes to his people. And all of his worst fears are realized. The Jewish people, they don't want anything to do with him. Pharaoh says, who do you think you are? And over the course of his life, even when things are going well, the whole nation turns on him. They want to kill him. They want to stone him. And over and over and over again, here's what God says to Moses. And I want you to read it for yourself. It's in this letter called Exodus. You can find it easily. Genesis, Exodus, very beginning of your Bible. Over and over, this is what God says to him. I know you. I see you. I put you here. I'm with you. I know you. I see you. I have put you here. I am with you. Let me remind you who you are because all these people are saying things about you that are going to sink you. I want to build you back up over and over again. So what's that have to do with loving everybody always? Well, how about this? We live in a world, and I'm finding more and more that we live in a world, and people have kind of, and excuse my language here, I don't know a better way to say this, a crappy narrative about themselves. Many people, we assume that our worst moments are our defining moments and our best moments just happen to come along every once in a while, like even a broken clock is right twice a day. That's what we assume about ourselves. And it's worse. We assume that other people can see it too. And so we hide 
and we put on masks. We hide behind social media to play a highlight reel of our lives because we're pretty sure if people see what's actually going on in our lives, they'll know that it's not all perfect. We hide behind our body and our image or our career. We hide behind looks from the ladies or calls from the fellas. We hide all the time, but hide drugs and alcohol. We hide, we hide, we hide because we're trying to medicate this thing that we believe about ourselves, which is that we really are crappy. And isn't it true that some of our biggest regrets came as a result of living into some pretty rotten beliefs about ourselves? Think about this. See me your biggest regrets. They came because you believed lies about yourself. Or you believed something that was actually true about you, but you believed that that was the thing that defined you. And you made choices based on that. And this is where it gets really good, because then you realized, oh man, I'm kind of messed up. So you went to church as a kid, and and church confirmed everything you believed. Because you'd get there, and the pastor would say, you actually are as crappy as you thought. You really are. Like, you are lame. Let me give you your weekly dose of guilt and shame. Let me fill up your shame bucket so you come back next week. And then the pastor would say, if you don't want to feel so bad about yourself, you should do this, and you should do that, and you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do that. And I've come to believe this, that Christians, especially pastors, but Christians in general, we have a bad habit of shooting all over people. All we ever do is should on people. You should do this, and you should do that. That is, oh, we just should on people. Yeah. I like that too. That is so, that's good. That's good. And it's well-intentioned shooting. It is. Because we want best, we want the best for people. So you look at your kids and say, hey, you're lame. Stop being lame. Do this. Hey, you have bad friends. Stop having bad friends. Have good friends. Um, We look at our spouse and say, hey, if you just do everything I tell you you should do, you'll be better. And then I'm going to watch you to make sure you do it all the time, over and over and over again. We have a bad habit of shooting on people. I remember I went to a Christian college. Hot tamales. I'm going to wrap this up. Went to a Christian college. Um, no, I didn't go to a Christian college. I was a brand new Christian, and I went to visit a friend at a Christian college, and I walked on campus with a cigarette because I smoked back then, and I had four different people on the way to visit my friend say, you shouldn't smoke, shouldn't smoke, smoking's bad for you, shouldn't smoke. Two things. One, I knew that, okay? I knew that. I had read the Surgeon General's warning. I did not assume that smoking would make me bigger and stronger and faster. And two, them shooting on me about smoking just made me want to smoke more. Because I have a rebellious streak in me, just like you, okay? It didn't help. But loving everybody always involves spending more time reminding people who they actually are rather than telling them what they should do. Now, if you're thinking right now to yourself, but we got to tell people what they should do, otherwise they aren't going to do it. Hold on, hold on. We'll get there. I will get to your internal in just a second. But here's the thing. Telling people what they should do, telling people what they should do, the best you can hope for is temporary compliance. Like as long as I'm around and watching you, maybe you'll do what I think you should do. That's the best we can hope for if we tell people what they should do all the time. But I've found this to be true. Not in my own life only, although it is in my own life, but as I read the story of Jesus, here's what I found to be true. People live into who they believe they truly are. Jesus was the master of this. Jesus walked around to people and he called them daughter, son, child. 
He said things to them like, God has come close to you, not because they were all polished up. He said this to them in their worst possible moments. Child, daughter, son, God has come close to you. You are the child of your heavenly father. And then he would say this beautiful thing. Now go and live into that reality. He used the phrase like this. Now go and and stop sinning. You're hurting yourself. But not because you should do it, but because you were created for more. This is who you are. I try, I, I try this from time to time. Um, hey, Lando, come here. This is my son. Come here. Come up here. Come up here. Come here. Yeah. yeah. Hey, come here. Come here. Come here. I didn't tell Lando we were chatting. Okay, look at me. Look at me. I want to talk to you about something. They're not even here. Most of them have tuned me out a long time ago. Okay. Hey, look at me. You are an incredible young man. Thank you. You're welcome. Landon, you are one of the most caring and sensitive people I've ever met. Right here, right here. Hey, you're smart. You're really good at math. Thanks. You're welcome. I love hanging out with you. When we get home, can we have a little wrestling match? Yeah. That'd be okay? Yeah, probably. Okay, cool. Hey, I love you. Can you touch it in front of them? In front of all of them. You don't have to. You can whisper in their ear. Okay, thanks. Go sit down. No. Okay. Lando! Now, now let me ask you a question. Does that mean he's perfect? No. He said yes. No. 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 Are we probably going to have some level of run-in today? Probably. Okay. Could I walk up here in front of all you people and say, hey, Landon, let me tell you 10 things you should do differently to make you better. I could have. Would it help our relationship? No. Would it give us a good chance that he would actually do it when he leaves this place? Probably not. He will live into who he is. Just like your spouse, who you're trying to get to be better by giving them constant lists and reminders about all the things they should do. They will live into who they are. And who, who they are is defined by God, their Heavenly Father, but it is communicated by the people they come in contact with. And so you and I have the opportunity every day at work, at home, with our neighbors to figure out the beauty of the people around us and remind them who they are. Because as people remember who they are In God's eyes, in God's image, they're one step closer to meeting the God who made them that way. You might be the bridge that opens the door for someone to be able to hear from God who they truly are. Now let me tell you who you are, and then we'll close our time together. You, pretend, I just got to talk to Lana, pretend I'm talking to you, okay? Let's just, here we are, front row, good work. Okay, here we are, Justin, I see you right there. Here we are. Okay, Spike, good. Jim, you are a child of God. That's who you are. Made in the image of God with beauty, creativity, passion. You were made 
to live in that reality. You were made to have a relationship with your creator. That's, that's who you are. That's how you were made. Now, all of us, we're told, have at one point or another chosen out of that opportunity. And so you know what God did because he believes so deeply in the beauty of who you are? God left heaven and came to earth in Jesus Christ to show you and I what it looks like to really know God. And then he gave his life for us, paying the penalty for our sin, those things that separate us from God and mask who we truly are so that we could come back into a relationship with our Heavenly Father. And then he rose from the dead. You don't have to take my word for it. Over 500 people saw it. He rose from the dead and he conquered the power of sin and death and destruction that mars us and breaks relationships so that we could actually live into who we are. And that's such good news. And if you're here today and you've never known that to be true, man, if you, if you forget everything else, just I need you to know God sees you. God knows you. He doesn't pretend that you're perfect. He makes a way through your imperfection to begin to reveal the beauty that is you. Now, how can you take God up on this? Well, you respond to God by saying to God, God, I want want to have relationship with you. I want to experience your forgiveness. I want to be adopted into your family as your child. I want... God, the power that comes with your spirit living in me to break pain and sin and destruction. I want to be who you say I am. And I'm going to pray right now. I'm going to give you a chance, if you've never done that, to say that to God this morning. Would you join me as we pray? You could just repeat these words right where you're sitting. You can whisper them to God. And we're told that God actually, he hears the cries of his people. He sees us in this moment. He's concerned for us and wants to walk with us. So God will hear and respond. You can say, Lord Jesus, I want, I want to be made new as I have a, enter into a relationship with you. God, I want to believe about me what you believe about me, which is that I was made in your image to be adopted as your child and to walk with you in this world. And so God, would you come into my life? Would you forgive me of the ways that I have marred who I truly am, that I've hurt myself and others and you? And would you give me the power to overcome destructive patterns that have hurt myself and so many others while at the same time reminding me daily who I am? pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you walk out of here today, here's an experiment. Find someone this week who maybe just needs to be reminded who they are. Take them out to coffee. Look them in the eye. Tell them what you believe. Write them a note. Send them a text. See if it doesn't draw you more into love. Draw them a little closer to Jesus. Have a great week. We'll see you next time. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.